Over the last few years, diversity and inclusion has become an ever more central topic to businesses, whether as part of governance through developments in the Corporate Governance Code, as part of culture, corporate social responsibility, or as an issue of employer reputation, a concern in the supply chain, a compliance, risk and liability issue, or as a central element in the S of ESG. The COVID-19 crisis has presented both challenges and opportunities to diverse groups of employees and to the diversity agenda itself. At the same time as the COVID crisis has developed, a second crisis has crystallized with the tragic murder of George Floyd, which through the BLM movement has brought race and racism to the center of the world's agenda. In this session, we propose to draw out the diversity issues arising from the COVID crisis and the issues arising from the BLM movement. We will consider the impacts of these two crises on disparate groups and the steps that employers might take to reverse or mitigate those impacts and reinforce their support for the diversity agenda. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Danso, Rochelle Silva, and Sameer Ashad Khan to talk about how to analyze the issues and to discuss how employers might address the issues. Daniel is our global diversity lead and works with me in our new diversity faculty, of which you will hear more over the next few weeks. Rochelle and Sameer are colleagues of mine in the employment team. So, Daniel, we've talked previously about a technique you've developed, which you describe as the diversity lens. Can you just explain to us how the diversity lens works as a way to see and evaluate the business world? Sure. But diversity and inclusion is complex. We're so used to seeing it applied to processes like recruitment and through risk and HR that we're missing the potential applications of a DNI lens in other areas. Some issues are very clearly in the diversity space. For example, a business's response to the Black Lives Matter movement or to Me Too, how they report diversity demographics or the actions they take to level the playing field but other business decisions may not overtly seem to have a diversity aspect, but would really benefit from being considered through a diversity lens. For example, the response to COVID-19 can clearly be seen through a lens of finance or a logistical process lens, but takes on a very particular shape when viewed through the lens of diversity to shine a light on the disparate impacts that different groups may experience as a result of a particular business approach to the current crisis. There is data available to show demonstrable impacts of COVID-19 for the BAME communities, the LGBT community, people living with disabilities in the gender space, for parents and for younger and older workers. And when you use the lens of diversity to see how different groups are impacted, it drives you to consider why those impacts have arisen and to think about whether as an employer, you can take steps to prevent or mitigate those impacts by group. It does, of course, also show the positives and sharper relief, and you do need to focus on those too. Um, and there are undoubtedly some groups who have experienced positive changes as a result of the way that businesses are now operating, and they will want to hold on to those positive changes. So using diversity as a lens will allow you to see when a process, a decision, a function, anything that involves a person going through it, it will allow you to see what their experiences might be. And that lens can lend itself to, as we said, recruitment, uh, to risk, to HR, but also to things like business development, to financial impact. Diversity as a lens is, is, a, is a key thing to be able to do. 
So let's consider those disparate impacts and apply diversity as a lens to look at the COVID crisis and its impact on a few of the groups affected. In this session, we'll look at the impact on women, on parents, on older and younger workers, and on people of colour. Rochelle, you've been looking at the impact of COVID-19 on women. Can you paint the landscape for us with some statistics? Thanks, Simon. So if we look at COVID-19 through the lens of gender diversity, it's now increasingly recognised that women are being disproportionately affected by the broader societal impacts of the pandemic. Turning first to job losses, women, especially young women, make up a significant proportion of workers in sectors that have been worst hit by the pandemic such as hospitality, retail, leisure, tourism, and the arts. A recent study by the University of Exeter shows that women are 96% more likely to have been made redundant because of COVID-19, with almost twice the number of women reporting a job loss during the first three months of lockdown compared with men. Even as early as May this year, a PwC study showed that 78% of individuals that had lost jobs since the COVID-19 crisis started were, in fact, women. Redundancy aside, women are also more likely than men to have seen a reduction to their working hours and as a result their salary during lockdown, while simultaneously being required to take on more childcare, homeschooling and housework responsibilities. Samaya will provide more detail on this point later in this podcast. Women also make up a large number of part-time workers in the UK and will therefore be more likely to face restrictions around sick pay and have an irregular income during the pandemic. Apart from the obvious impacts that this will have on women financially, we should also recognise that this will have an effect on the well-being of many women. We're likely to see a rise in numbers of women experiencing stress, anxiety and depression or other mental health issues as a result of this. Whilst we're on the topic of gender, it's also worth me briefly mentioning the gender pay gap. The UK government's suspension of the 2020 gender pay gap reporting requirement will have also had a disproportionate effect on women. As a result, a very high proportion of companies, almost half the number that made disclosures in 2019, chose not to voluntarily disclose their figures. Sadly, this risks pushing gender diversity further down the agenda. In fact, research by charity Turn to Us showed that COVID-19 only served to widen the gender pay gap even further. So now that we're aware of this data, how might it influence an employer's business decisions? The most obvious solution is that employers should be wary of any unconscious biases that may be at play when they make selections for processes such as hiring or redundancy. If a selection process is likely to involve any element of subjective decision making, it may be helpful for those making the decisions to undergo unconscious bias training beforehand, for example. Employers should also regularly scrutinise shortlists of individuals selected for hiring or redundancy and ask themselves, is this list skewed in its representation? Is there a pattern here? were the correct selection criteria used? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, it may be an idea to reevaluate at this stage if necessary. It's worth bearing in mind, however, that there do exist certain sectors where staff are predominantly female. Where this is the case, any shortlist that would otherwise look skewed may in fact reflect the reality. Employers should also encourage a diverse range of applicants to apply for any available positions. Targets aren't necessarily an end in themselves, but may be a useful way of measuring progress. This approach is obviously not limited to diversity in terms of gender alone, but may help to boost the representation of women in the workplace. Female retention is also hugely important, so having allies in the workplace to champion female progression may be helpful, as well as an increased senior engagement and reverse mentoring initiatives. These methods may also be a useful way of encouraging diversity in other respects, which we'll come on to later. 
So Maya will now go into the impact of COVID-19 on parents in particular. Thanks, Rochelle. As you mentioned, an allied issue is the impact of COVID-19 on parents. So if we look through the lens of parents, the situation has been compounded by three factors. Parents are working from home, there are disruptions at schools, and so children are also finding themselves at home more often. And support from outside the home, such as from a childminder or a cleaner, is now more difficult to access. This means that parents are having to fit work commitments around childcare. A study carried out by IFS and the UCL Institute of Education found that parents on average were carrying out childcare duties for nine hours each day during lockdown and an average of just three hours of paid work. Now compare that with figures from 2014, which showed that parents carried out an average of five and a half hours of childcare each day and six and a half hours of paid work. So that's the impact on the parenting unit as a whole. But when you look at the relative impact on mothers versus fathers, there are more issues at play. The same study, which looked at opposite gender parents, found that COVID has had a disproportionate impact on mothers. Mothers were 47% more likely than fathers to have lost their jobs or to have been furloughed. They saw a greater reduction in their working hours. They suffered more interruptions in their work and they picked up the bulk of the time spent on childcare and housework. The sharp reduction in the time that mothers are spending dedicated to paid work could cause lasting harm to their careers. And when we saw workers returning to offices, so before Boris's most recent call for employees to go back to working from home, there were signs of a two-tier workforce emerging. So parents and more often mothers who had domestic duties were finding it difficult to return leaving them vulnerable to being out of sight, out of mind. Whereas their more mobile colleagues were already back in the office. So what steps can an employer take to prevent or mitigate these impacts? Well, having a social media channel accessible to your employees, perhaps one led by the parents or carers network, can be a good outlet for parents to share best practice, blogs and advice, and just to generally let off some stress. Being able access the social media platform from home will allow employees to feel connected whether they're in work or not. It will also be important for managers to understand the particular circumstances individual parents find themselves in. For instance, some may not have the support of another parent to share the load with. Some may have children with special needs and parents of babies and toddlers face their own particular challenges. Managers and employees can work together to devise the best times for team calls and contingency plans if a last minute situation crops up. Employers may also consider revisiting how they implement existing statutory rights available for parents. For example, parents that have worked for their employer for one year have the right to 18 weeks of unpaid time off to look after a child under the age of 18. The limit on how much parental leave each parent can take in a year is four weeks per child. But in the current circumstances, employers may wish to allow struggling parents to take longer than four weeks in any year. Finally, introducing an agile working policy would also be a welcome move for parents. We cover agile working and the opportunities and challenges it presents in more detail in our first podcast in this series. So I won't go into any more detail on this point. Now that being said, it's not all bad news for parents. 
the IFS and UCL study did find that lockdown has resulted in some changes in the behaviour of fathers. Fathers have nearly double the time they spend on housework and childcare as compared with back in 2014. This may bring about changes in the attitudes of employers and society in general about the role of fathers in meeting family needs during the working week. And it may serve as an impetus for a more equal sharing of childcare and housework between mothers and fathers after lockdown ends. Now let's look at the impact on groups of different ages, the younger and the older members of the workforce. We know that young adults have suffered and continue to face challenges in education arising from the COVID crisis, but it's also impacting them in the workplace. The IFS has identified that employees aged under 25 are two and a half times as likely to work in one of the sectors that was fully locked down. 30% of all under 25s work in the sectors that were shut down compared with 13% of over 25s. The report does identify one mitigating factor in that many of the affected younger workers are still living with their parents, providing some sort of protection to their living standard. But that's cold comfort to a group whose future now feels very different, with the ONS showing 156,000 fewer under 25s in employment over the three months to July 2020. For older workers too, the contraction in the job market carries particular risks. Older workers are more likely to be expensive resources and if they do lose their jobs, structural ageism is likely to make it more difficult for older workers to re-enter a contracting job market. These age-related risks are part of the wider picture and it may be difficult for individual employers to mitigate them directly. But employers should be aware of the impact of these issues on their workers and understand the very particular strains that it places on employees in these groups. In carrying out restructurings which involve selection, employers should also be ensuring that criteria and decisions are moderated in order to protect against discriminatory decision-taking. The return to work also raises some particular issues for diverse groups too. In the current climate, certain groups may feel less comfortable returning to the workplace. And looking at this issue through the lens of race and ethnicity, we see that black and minority ethnic workers are more likely to fall into this category. Figures from the IFS, Public Health England and ONS have shown that COVID-19 has had a more serious impact on these individuals. Some of these workers may in fact be classed as extremely vulnerable. Where this is the case, it's vitally important that employers accommodate the needs of these employees if they wish to and can continue working from home in line with the government's new guidance, or do the utmost to make sure they feel safe if their role requires them to return to work. This applies more generally to any high-risk employee that is uneasy about returning to the office. Employers could, for example, permit high-risk employees to continue working from home or look to redeploy vulnerable staff to alternative roles that facilitate this where possible. Many individuals who are classed as vulnerable to COVID-19 may also qualify as disabled within the meaning of the Equality Act, and the employer's duty to make reasonable adjustments may require the transfer of these employees into safer alternative roles or permitting them to take unpaid leave. As some of these employees may wish to return to work eventually, employers should ensure that their workplaces are COVID secure and that as far as reasonably practicable, the health, safety and welfare at work of returning employees is maintained regular risk assessment should be carried out and any identified risks minimised. 
Employers should also consult with employees or their representatives where changes are proposed to working practices and the workforce should generally be kept informed about health and safety at work, including through the provision of training, instructions and supervision. Obviously, there are risks that come with attempting to force or really encourage high risk workers back into the office, which Simon will go into now. Instructing extremely vulnerable or high risk workers to return to the workplace and taking disciplinary action or dismissing them if they refuse to do so is a highly risky approach. While employees have a duty to follow the reasonable instructions of their employer, a request for an employee to return to the workplace when they are high risk and therefore in personal danger is unlikely to be perceived as reasonable. Be wary of any practices that could breach express contractual rights or breach the implied duty of trust and confidence. Employees also have the right to remove themselves from an unsafe working environment under Section 44 of the Employment Rights Act. This applies where an employee refuses to return to their workplace because they reasonably believe there is a serious and imminent threat to them or where they take appropriate steps, including refusal to return to work, to protect themselves or others from a danger which they reasonably believe to be serious and imminent. COVID-19 may well constitute a serious and imminent danger under Section 44. An employee who is dismissed under these circumstances will be regarded as automatically unfairly dismissed. Finally, employers should also bear in mind that any staff that have raised concerns about safety in the workplace may also benefit from whistleblowing protection. The return, when it really comes, will need to be handled carefully and thoughtfully, recognising individual circumstances and concerns. So, looking at our new world through the diversity lens reveals the real human impact of the COVID crisis on diverse groups. But none of this means that it's time to pull back from D&I initiatives. Some of the qualities which characterize diverse and inclusive companies, notably innovation and resilience, will be essential as companies recover from the crisis. Now more than ever, companies will need inspiration, creativity and active collaboration in decision making, all of which are enabled through inclusive behaviors. D&I can operate as a force to shore up business performance and organizational health and to reinforce social cohesion. So how should companies approach D&I during this testing time? We have some positive suggestions. The isolating and atomizing effect of remote working can be countered by effective, inclusive behaviors. Remote working does not need to erode cohesion. And D&I can be used to bring your workforce closer together, even at a time when circumstance makes them physically apart. The creativity required to outthink the crisis is fostered by diverse thinking. Businesses will need diverse voices to offer multiple perspectives, to challenge and rethink their business models to best serve them in this crisis. Recognizing and addressing the health and well-being issues employees are encountering will also protect productivity. A key part of that process is recognizing the impacts on particular groups of employees in order to address their concerns. Personal value, a sense of appreciation and self-esteem will be key for workers to just keep going. 
businesses with a developed DNI approach are simply more likely to recognize the importance of their people and to actively support and reinforce them. Adaptation to change, whether through agile working or technological solutions will be essential. An inclusive team tends to be a more cohesive team, better equipped to support each other through change and to adapt together. So is this a time of crisis for diversity? Or is this in fact a time to drive the diversity agenda forward? Trust, personal value, agility, innovation and resilience are all characteristics of the diversity driven business. They are all also characteristics that business will need to weather the crisis and to thrive in the recovery. That all suggests that now is not the time to compromise your diversity agenda, but rather to push it forward. In addition to the COVID crisis, we are also facing a second crisis, a crisis of race and culture identified and voiced by the BLM movement, which is echoing across the globe. Daniel, what role can business play in addressing the issues raised by the BLM crisis? I think to answer that, we, we first have to go back and understand where it's come from and how it went out globally and, and really look at what the, the actual challenges that businesses are having to deal with. I think with the marked differences COVID-19 had for minority ethnic communities, the ones that were previously mentioned, we also saw a rise in anti-Asian sentiment because of COVID's origin. Uh, we saw differences in cultural experiences. For example, those cultures that stay together, the impact in multi-generational families, which pose higher threats compared to those cultures that didn't. But before the world could really get to grips with what COVID meant for race and ethnicity, we were hit by another crisis, the tragic murder of George Floyd in the States and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter protests. Now, for the United States, this was a historic uh, and systemic problem uh, of police force being used disproportionately against African-Americans. Um, it wasn't the first time that this had happened. And, you know, since the, the protests in, in uh, June of 2020, um, there have been others who have tragically died. And so the thing to note about this is what happened in that time that made it global. So there were innovations in technology like smartphones where a, a diminishing technological uh, divide meant that people from lower socioeconomic groups had more access to these things. They could capture images in the moment before police or news could change a story or bury it. Um, we happened to be in a pandemic with much of the world locked down at the same time. And because of innovations of the other technologies, we were able to work from home connected. So we had nothing but time to see the TikToks, the videos, the articles in ways that if we were commuting and working, we would have missed them. I think the combination of those things meant that this iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, unlike its origin in 2015, captured the world. Um, and what we saw was it showed that people from black backgrounds shared a common marginalization. It highlighted that being uh, the experiences of people from black backgrounds or, or other racial backgrounds manifest in different ways around the globe. Uh, it also connected a new generation of allies. 
So people who were just as appalled by this behavior and this treatment who may not have been from that background actually found a voice in, in the web, in the net. It also showed that few things can be hidden in today's connected world. And so businesses started reacting by putting out their statements of support uh, and declarations of support for the black community, despite statistics showing that support is marginal. Businesses started reevaluating their brands and their performance and managing the careers of talent for minority ethnic backgrounds and the scrutiny was public. Um, it was systemic and institutional change that was another really big difference for this year compared to 2015's Black Lives Matter uh, origin. And it was looking at the systemic racism and the powers of police, the judicial system, government, and indeed the educational and business worlds. And so that had an impact on businesses because the real challenge became how to talk equitably about race and racism and focus on the careers uh, of people from black backgrounds, which are significantly underrepresented compared to other ethnic groups in a way that other experiences didn't feel superseded. And so what we saw were uh, an outpouring of stories uh, from both members of, of the black community and other ethnic backgrounds and stories from allies. But what we also saw was that there was a lack of confidence in having even basic conversations about race. And in a pandemic, when we're, we need trust and psychological safety to have these conversations, we were trying to do them and needing to do them over video conference and virtual catch-ups. And so what we're starting to see now is that businesses are having to think about the way that this is impacting them around the globe in the other countries where Black may not be the biggest uh, population, how do they get for local offices and local cultures to be able to talk about their experiences of race? And so these challenges are very big right now, but I think the main thing that we are seeing as a trend is that with a lack of trust in psychological safety and statistics show that people from minority backgrounds have less of that, um, the work that businesses have to do to really offset that has to be visible. It's got to be tangible and it has to be measurable, both on a culture side, but also on a structural and institutional side. But it all starts with being able to have courageous conversations. Uh, Samaya is gonna tell you more about how to have those. Thanks, Daniel. A recent business in the community survey found that employees from all ethnicities felt their employers were not comfortable talking about race. The survey found that conversations about age, gender and sexuality were often easier to have than conversations about race in the workplace. So a key practical step an employer can take is to actively promote and create real opportunities for employees to have courageous conversations about race. And having courageous conversations is about taking the time to listen and reflect on the truth of experiences of ethnic minorities. It's about learning about the history and the context in which race and racism exists in the US and the UK and understanding the practical steps we must all take to dismantle systemic racism in our workplaces and societies. But with not everyone back in the office, as Daniel mentioned, it's much harder for these courageous conversations to take place. It just doesn't seem as natural to have these conversations virtually. Employers should therefore consider 
giving employees specific guidance about how to have these conversations so they can get comfortable doing so, whether it's in person, over email or over video calls. So these tips might include, for example, what phrases they should use, what phrases they should avoid, choosing the right time to have the conversations, assuming positive intent and being willing to admit mistakes. As well as guidance for how to hold courageous conversations, it will also be important to share learning materials with your employees so they can deepen their understanding of the issues, which is the foundation for giving employees the confidence to have courageous conversations. Employers should also seek to provide opportunities for these conversations to take place, all of which can be accessed remotely, of course. So this might include arranging for renowned speakers to give talks on relevant topics, hosting exhibitions, panel discussions and movie screenings. It will also be important for employers to ensure these events are marketed well and that attendance is actively encouraged by managers. We have also seen employers set up an ethnic minority allies network, which can allow for a safe space for such conversations to take place. So as businesses face the challenges of these two crises, the importance of understanding the impacts of these global events from diverse perspectives casts a new light on the issues, helping businesses to understand and appreciate what their people are experiencing and to think of diversity both as a lens to analyse the issues and as a tool to address workforce concerns. In our next podcast, the employment team will consider some of the governance issues generated by the COVID crisis. Thank you for listening and Daniel, Samea, Rochelle, thank you for sharing your insights.